0: When we bring compassion and kindness and even curiosity to our behaviors, it actually turns on the learning centers of the brain and gives us the capacity to make changes. Conversely, when we shame and judge ourselves, it shuts down our capacity to learn and it keeps us stuck in repeating the same patterns that are causing harm. So during these times, I think the most important thing is for us to meet whatever's happening, with clarity and with compassion, and especially compassion for ourselves, because it's hard right now.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is mindfulness and meditation expert, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Shauna is a clinical psychologist, professor, and bestselling author, most recently of the book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. I chose to speak with Shauna in early April 2020 amidst the global pandemic of the coronavirus in hopes that she could offer both perspective and some actionable practices to help us all cope. Um, I found our conversation extremely useful. I hope you'll enjoy it. So obviously, Shauna, at this time, we can certainly use a lot of calm and clarity. And part of the reason that I've asked you on this uh, podcast today is is to speak about accessing your greater wisdom in the the time of madness like this. I wanted to give you some space at the beginning of our program to address any listeners out there who might be experiencing great anxiety or fear in the face of the unknown.
0: Absolutely. I mean, right now, all of us are experiencing the impact of the uncertainty and the overwhelm Um, you know, in our nervous systems and in our hearts and our minds, it's impacting all of us. And I think the first thing to say is that's natural, right? It's normal and appropriate to be afraid right now. And the key behind these practices is really to help us meet our fear or grief or our frustration to meet this with clarity and with kindness and I think this is really the power of mindfulness is that it gives us the resources to meet whatever's happening and, and to really see it clearly so that we can respond effectively. In fact, the word mindfulness means to see clearly. So all we're trying to do is see clearly what's happening so we can meet this moment and respond with wisdom and compassion.
1: That's really beautiful, that, that idea that mindfulness is to see clearly and not want it to be different, but just to experience it. Um, in, in your book, Good Morning, I Love You, you bring up this interesting equation, which originates from the meditation teacher Shinzen Young, and it, it, suffering equals pain, time, resistance. So would you mind uh, speaking about that?
0: That's a really important one right now. So from a mindfulness lens, pain is a part of life. Pain is the fact that we all are going to get sick, grow old and die. Um, None of us escapes and neither do the people we love. And that's the reality of our life. And all of us are experiencing that right now where there there's pain is kind of a constant part of life, but suffering is optional. And this is the, the beautiful part of the equation. It says pain times resistance equals how much we suffer. And so we only suffer based on the amount that we resist the pain. And what I mean by resist is where we fight against it or we judge or we blame or we shame. So for example, if I am feeling really stressed and overwhelmed right now and I'm trying to work and all my kids are at home doing online online school, we have four kids at home right now, so I'm speaking uh, (laughs) out of my personal experience and then maybe I snap at someone. So there's the pain of the experience, right? But then if I resist it and I start judging myself and shaming myself and saying, God, you're such a terrible mom and you're a meditation teacher and why can't you handle this? I'm I'm adding to my pain and I'm increasing my suffering. And so the way the equation works is that if you just accept the pain of what's happening, which for all of us, there's not tremendous control right now. So there are certain things we can do, of course, shelter in place and wash our hands and keep up on the news in a sane way, but there's a lot that's out of our control. And so what we want to do is face that pain without adding suffering to it, without adding our resistance. And so from the mindfulness lens, we learn how to embrace the pain. So for the example, the small example I gave to notice how much pain I'm feeling from snapping at my child and to feel the remorse but then not to use my energy to judge and shame myself, but instead to feel compassion. Say, sweetheart, you're a little overwhelmed, and to see it clearly and say, what can you do next time so that you don't snap? How can you pause or take a deep breath? And what's interesting is when we bring compassion and kindness and even curiosity to our behaviors, it actually turns on the learning centers of the brain and gives us the capacity to make changes. Conversely, when we shame and judge ourselves, it shuts down our capacity to learn and it keeps us stuck in repeating the same patterns that are causing harm. So during these times, I think the most important thing is for us to meet whatever is happening with clarity and with compassion and especially compassion for ourselves because it's hard right now.
1: Shauna, that's so wonderful. And I'm so glad that you brought up compassion. Some people may be experiencing a family member or a friend who's sick. Or going through a hard time or dealing with isolation or other issues. And of course, we empathize with them and we want to show them compassion. In your book, you talked a bit about the difference between empathy and compassion. And I was hoping you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, it's so important right now. I'm so glad you brought that up, Sam. So What's really interesting is, of course, all of us are have loved ones and friends and people in our community that are suffering right now um, in big and small ways. And so... What's important is to learn the difference between empathy and compassion. And there was recent research out of um, Europe, out of Germany and Switzerland that showed when you experience empathy for someone who's suffering, like let's say you see someone stub their toe, your mirror neurons get activated and you're like, ouch, and the pain centers in your brain light up. When you um, feel compassion for someone, you have to go through the gateway of empathy because you have to know they're suffering. That's why we need these mirror neurons. But then when you feel compassion, you, you activate the reward centers and the positive centers in the brain because it transforms into this desire to help. You actually feel your love and your care for this person. So this is really important at a time right now where we're seeing people suffer. And if we get stuck just in empathizing with them, we're gonna get burned out and overwhelmed because then we're just, we're just triggering our pain centers in our brain because we're feeling their pain. So the key is to feel their pain, not be afraid of it, not numb out, feel their pain, and then transform it into compassion. The desire to help, the, the sense of how much I love this person, how much I care about them. And it's a challenging one, and you have to stay really present, but the key is to focus on your love instead of the pain, to focus on, I want this suffering to end for them. How can I help? And that is actually very protective. And when I work with therapists and physicians, and especially right now, people on the front line, this is so, so important.
1: Yeah, that I, I can't think of, of another practice that could be more important than this, and of course, I'm thinking all the time about the, the doctors and nurses who are like going through hell right now, basically. And you know I, I, I understand it and then I have to turn off my heart or my brain because it's too, it's too painful for me to continue to experience it. So what I'm getting from you is that there's a way to use compassion as a, as a way to turn it into a positive emotion.
0: Yes. And and let me say two things because it's a little more nuanced than that because you're exactly right, Sam. When we can start to get overwhelmed and almost not even have the capacity to take in the pain and transform it into compassion. So that's the first step is to try to do that. But when you start getting overwhelmed, what is also very helpful and very nourishing is to do something that I call pendulate, which is to go from the negative and to consciously intentionally incline your mind toward the positive to say right now I actually need to rest and recoup and so some of the meditations that I work with are how do we take time to focus our mind on gratitude and to think of all the people in our life that have supported us in past and present and to notice the beautiful, even the simple things. And this is a way to help our nervous system downregulate, to help our our hearts come back into, you know, out of fear and into safety. And one of these practices that I love, and for those that are listening, you can do with me right now is, is simply to let your eyes close and then let there be a gentle smile on your mouth. And I know it sounds a little bit fake or a little bit hokey, but the smile signals to the nervous system that you're safe, that you can relax. And it is so important for us right now to take time every day to rest in this safety. And so to pause and feel the smile, and you can even let it crinkle up into your eyes, And then I'll just put my hand on my heart. You can try that with me. And this is just a very gentle gesture of self-care. And when you put your hand on your heart, it releases oxytocin, which is a healthy hormone chemical that supports us. And so you can just pause and let yourself be nourished. And when you're ready, you can let your eyes open and just notice that this small practice, it maybe takes 30 seconds, can actually help us move out of our fight-or-flight response and into a more grounded place from which we can then return to help and support.
1: so important for us to experience the, the the range of emotions, because a lot of us today, including myself, get caught in this, I don't want to say panic, but it's sort of like a low-grade, constant anxiety, trying to trying to regulate what's going on. There's a section in your book, which I really appreciated, which in, is entitled, Priming Your Brain for Joy. And, it, and, and there's another mm-hmm word that you use called mudita, empathic joy. And I was wondering if you could just speak about how can we access joy and empathic joy?
0: Absolutely. And what's interesting is, so we have something called the negativity bias. And what this means is we tend to focus on the negative. And evolutionarily, we've been hardwired to do that and it made sense. This is how we survived. We scanned our environment for danger And we're really descended from these anxious ancestors who were constantly looking for danger, right? We're not descended from the chill, mellow people who, you know, when there was a rustling in the bushes, we're like, oh, let me pet the pretty kitty. (laughs) Those people died. So we're we're descended um, from people who were anxious and always scanning for the negative. But this tends to be problematic, especially in our current day where there's not those same life and death stressors all the time although right now it actually feels like it. But what happens is just what you said, is we have this low-grade anxiety all the time, and our body, our physiology never gets to rest. And it's really out of that rest and out of that clear scene that our wisdom, that new solutions arise. And so one of the focuses of the book is how to take time to balance this negativity bias and to incline our mind towards joy and towards gratitude and towards beauty and the word mudita it's actually one of my absolute favorite words it means to take joy in someone else's joy and the easiest way to think about it and i'm sure you can relate is to imagine a child right to imagine that child having a success maybe it was their first you know time they walked or the first time they said something or as they get older the first time they board a goal And to feel as a parent, you're just joy in their joy, just this tremendous joy. And yet it tends to get a little harder when it's maybe your colleague or, you know, your friend that sometimes it's harder for us to access that joy. And one thing the Dalai Lama said that was so beautiful, he said, if you can learn how to practice mudita, if you can practice joy in another's joy, you've increased your odds of happiness 7 billion to 1 because there's always someone happy around you. You can always find it. And so this practice of Mudita, um, and you can do it even when you're sheltering in and in quarantine, is to find a friend or a family member and to sit and just repeat again and again what brings you joy, and then listen for their joy. And to do that for a couple of minutes and then you change roles. But what's extraordinarily about this is it's twofold. First is instead of talking about how afraid you are or what's wrong in the world, which we all could do 24 hours a day, you're actually taking this precious sacred time to focus on the joy and you're cultivating these neural pathways of gratitude, of presence, of happiness, and you're receiving that joy from someone else. So I really encourage people to find time every day, even if it's five minutes, to practice this. In in my family, we've been practicing quite a bit, and the kids kind of roll their eyes every time I say, we're going to do the joy exercise. But it's it's just as important as our doing physical exercise. And it really does carve out these pathways that are incredibly protective and are growing resources for us in this time.
1: That is so great, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad we're having this conversation, shauna, because i'm I'm getting a ton out of it. you know <laughs> these These questions aren't just for some abstract listener out in the, out in, the, in the space who <laughs> I've never met. they're for me um, i want to uh-huh. I want to talk a little bit about coping, right so So in your book, you talk about two of our most ineffective coping mechanisms which you say are are shame and self-esteem can can we speak a little bit about why these two coping mechanisms don't work
0: absolutely and i'll start with self-esteem because that one's kind of the most surprising you know self-esteem we've spent millions of dollars training our our kids in schools and self-esteem and what the newest research is showing is that self-esteem is actually not very effective and not very um protective of, of people during stressful times. That self-esteem is great when things are going well, but it's kind of like a fair weather friend. And as soon as things get hard, it abandons you because self-esteem is always based on the external and how you're doing and comparing to other people. The powerful and perhaps surprising antidote is self-compassion. Self-compassion is there all the time, no matter what, when you're succeeding and when you failed. And so what happens is you learn how to be your inner ally instead of your inner enemy. That self-compassion is this kind of, I find it, it's like this protective suit, that it's like no matter what happens, I'm on your team. And it's also incredibly protective and an antidote to shame, which is our other coping tool, right? When something goes wrong, we either kind of pretend it didn't happen and we build up our self-esteem, or we beat ourselves up and break ourselves down. And shame, you know, people have this mistaken belief that if they shame or judge themselves or push themselves really hard, that somehow they'll improve or get better. And yet the research shows the exact opposite. For example, people who are trying to lose weight, you know, you would think that if you're really tough on yourself and beat yourself up, you would do better. No, the people in the self-compassion group who were learning self-compassion, as part of their diet, we're much better at exercising and eating healthy. And it turns out that when we care about ourselves, we take care of ourselves. People are often so afraid when I suggest they practice self-compassion, they say, well, I'm gonna become indulgent in a couch potato and lose my edge and lose my motivation. But science shows the exact opposite. People who practice self compassion are higher in self compassion. They're more motivated. They're better leaders. They are um, rated by their partners as more generous. You know, people think self compassion is selfish, but they're rated as more generous. And they're much more effective at making change. And so during these times, I believe the most effective coping tools we have are mindfulness, which is seeing things clearly, and then compassion. Which is really being on our own team, being our own inner ally.
1: Yeah, that's great, and it, and it's so important to uh, to emphasize that during these really challenging times, that voice, uh, that critical voice, can come in so easily. Yeah, I've struggled with that as well, and also I I, res- I resonate with with what you're saying this this idea that oh, if I'm going to be compassionate to myself, I'm not going to achieve you know. 25% as much as as I do if I beat myself with this imaginary whip.
0: You're exactly right. And I think where it gets really tough is when it's things that you really care about. You know, like I know for you, like wanting to be the best dad you can be. And it kind of feels like, well, wait, if, I, if I'm compassionate, am I going to let myself off the hook? And am I not going to do as good a job? And that's what I really, that's why the science for me is so compelling is that shame doesn't work. When we shame ourselves, we literally shut down the learning centers of the brain. We shuttle our resources to survival pathways. And so if we want to make a change, we're shutting down our capacity to learn when we shame ourselves. The key is kindness and compassion and curiosity These attitudes, they activate, first of all, the relaxation response instead of the stress response in the brain. And they also release neurotransmitters such as acetylcholamine, endorphins, and oxytocin, which really help us learn. And so even in difficult situations, by simply adding the resonance of kindness, we're able to make changes. And I know it's counterintuitive, and I know it's so challenging. And that's why I tell people, this is not about, you know, perfect it's about practice, you know? Can you be 5% kinder to yourself? 5% more compassionate?
1: Like about your work, Shauna, is that how you use science and you use studies in order to defeat uh, ideas that have become ingrained in uh, in the collective psyche, but are untrue? You know, it's you're always coming at mindfulness from the scientific angle, using studies to bolster your teaching. But your attitude is anything but clinical or cold. I mean, it, in fact, it seems more warm and heartfelt <laughs> than I would normally associate with research driven work.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you. I think I'm in a really unique position. And what I'll say is the reason I use the science is because I have to for myself is I, you know, I was introduced to mindfulness uh, as a teenager during one of the darkest times of my life when I had um, spinal fusion surgery. And it was almost like I didn't totally believe it worked. Like it, it was so helpful and beneficial and it helped me so much through the pain, the physical pain and The loneliness of that time. But um, when I came back from Thailand and Nepal where I'd gone to study in these monasteries, there was a part of me that was like, hey, but does it really work? And is this really for real? And so that's why I went and got my PhD and became a professor and have really spent the last 20 years scientifically studying mindfulness because in some ways it calms my own heart down. It says, oh yeah, this is really true. And there's a way when I'm working with patients or students you know, for me to use the science to help motivate and help them trust. And then of course, when you practice, you experience it for yourself from the inside out and you don't even need the science. But there's a lot of ways that the science kind of calms us down. And again, that's how we learn. We learn when we feel safe.
1: So at this time, it feels like a lot of people are kind of paralyzed into inaction by this kind of edict to stay in the home. And, and not go out and expose themselves or others to the coronavirus, which has thrown this world into a bit of, of chaos. There's a phrase in your book, which I really liked, that you encourage your clients to set, quote, ridiculously unambitious goals.
0: <laughs> yes. I actually got that from my dear friend and colleague, Christine Carter. And I loved this idea because for me being a perfectionist, I I always feel like everything has to be done perfectly or all at once. And I think for a lot of people right now, they have these lofty goals of like, well, I'm sheltering in, so I'm going to get in really good shape, or I'm going to become vegan, or I'm going to, you know, write a book. And then we don't meet our expectations because they're so high. And then we just kind of give up. Like you said, we become paralyzed. And so one of the chapters in the book focuses on something I call the 5% principle. And this has helped me probably more than anything, which is, can I just do 5% more? So can I do 5% more exercise? Or can I eat 5% um, healthier? And that has, what it does is it lets you begin. And I think that's really the key for people in making changes is just that first step. And for them to recognize that, change happens in small increments, right? Change is not about perfection. In fact, um, perfection is the antithesis of evolution, right? Once you've made it, there's no more evolving and growing. So we're constantly evolving and growing. And what people don't realize is these small changes have huge impact, huge impact. In fact, if you just think about, you know, if you have a fever, And if you bring it down from 102 back to 99, it's a huge change, even if it's only three degrees. And so I think it's important for people to kind of burst this myth of perfection and to just do 5%. Right.
1: And that reminds me of another quote from your book, Good Morning, I Love You. We must change our mindset from one of self-improvement to self-liberation. But what does that mean to you?
0: That one is very important. It's really this idea that we're not engaging in these practices to become a perfect person. And the, the goal is not this kind of constant self-improvement where you're never good enough. And I remember it was, it was kind of a huge realization for me. It was only about 10 years ago. So I've been practicing for quite a long time. And I realized that I was using meditation and mindfulness as one more way to beat myself up one more way that I wasn't good enough. Now, you know, I wasn't patient enough or I wasn't generous enough. And I was using these kind of lofty spiritual ideals to beat myself up. And what I realized is that the goal is freedom, right? The goal is liberation. The goal is liberation from the judgmental egocentric mind. And that if we forget, our deepest intention for doing these practices, then our mind will co-opt them into one more way to judge and shame and criticize ourselves. And we'll never get off that hamster wheel of self-improvement. And so the key for me is always returning to my deepest intention, which is freedom, which is an open heart, which is compassion and really remembering my interdependence with everything.
1: Mm. Yeah, that is so great. That is such a great reminder to always come back to that primary goal. For why are we sitting here? Why are we? Why are we doing this thing that has become a habit? And and I wanted to ask you, how do you keep a beginner's mindset about mindfulness? You know, given the fact that it's been your primary focus since graduating college, you you say in your book when people are curious about a subject they're actually better at learning the information and remembering it. So what is it that that keeps you curious and engaged about this subject?
0: Absolutely, well I feel so lucky because my grandparents were the most curious people in the world and they, even though they never meditated in their life, I feel like they taught me more about mindfulness than anyone else because they had this beginner's mind. It was this fresh everyday curiosity of seeing everything as if it was the first time. And so I think I was raised with that attitude, which I'm so grateful. And that's why I put so much energy into making the attitudes of mindfulness, of curiosity and kindness so important that these really fuel mindfulness and they keep it alive and they keep it fresh. You know, I also feel very fortunate to be a professor because my students, they're always asking questions and they're, they're helping me see things from a different lens. And so what I found is the key for me to practice is every day approaching it as if it was the first time and to really taking those micro, micro breaths, those micro movements, those in between moments and giving them the same care and the same attention as I would the big ones. And it was one of the things that one of the monks said to me at the monastery, he said, every moment matters equally. And that was revolutionary for me because I remember I'd be like washing the dishes or cutting the vegetables, and I was like, "Oh, these are like the not real moments at the monastery. They don't count. It's really (laughs) when I'm meditating that's important." (laughs) But he was exactly right, which is, I mean, and it's really the bedrock of neuroplasticity, which says what you practice grows stronger, all the time. Every moment matters. Every moment matters equally. And so, what I've learned and what has really brought a lot of joy and a lot of health into my life is bringing curiosity and kindness to everything that every moment matters. And gosh, if you have kids, they'll remind you all the time. (laughs) My, my son will often say, what are you practicing right now, mom?
1: (laughs) (laughs) have a couple more questions for you, Shauna. It's really great to get this perspective. And I can imagine a lot of people out there really benefiting from this. There was a, an important teacher and leader at Esalen named George Leonard, who coined the phrase, take the hit as a gift. In, in essence, it, it means when something that appears really awful is happening to you, how can you reimagine it in a certain way as something, as, as a gift to you? And I was wondering if, if you've been able during this time of shelter in place if you've been able to to re-envision and reimagine what we're going through uh, as a as a people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really important reflection. You know, the word crisis in Chinese is composed of two characters and the first means danger, which makes sense, but the second means opportunity. And I do think there's a way to look at everything that's happening as an opportunity. And you know, I wanna be really careful in saying this. I worked um, at the cancer center for a long time with women with breast cancer, and I will never forget the day when this one woman said, someone tried to tell me that getting cancer was a gift because it was gonna wake me up. And she said, you can take this gift right back. And that really touched me because I think it's so important to look for the positive and the silver lining, and we also have to be careful um, as we do it in in not negating the suffering that's happening. So I'm gonna answer within that context of, of course, none of us would want what's happening to happen. But within that, absolutely. I mean, even just in my own personal life with launching my new book, um, on top of being a full-time professor, I have been moving much faster than I'm used to and traveling a ton. And there was just all this, I want this to reach everyone in the world and how can I do this? And I was very far away from my body and from my center and from the things that really matter. And I have felt so grateful these last few weeks being still, it's been a tremendous gift to have the time to pause and, um, really reflect on what is truly important and I think all of us are seeing that that you know if you think back two months ago what you were worrying about it seems relatively trivial compared to right now and the the focus on family and love and connection and also supporting each other I've been so touched by the generosity of people by the sense of community and the way everyone is helping each other that I think we do have this opportunity to re-envision and to reprioritize and to start really dedicating ourselves to a future um, that we truly want.
1: Mm, that's really great. You know, on the subject of the book, I- I'm going to ask you a question, Shauna, kind of a personal uh, question that I'm, I'm interested in, so I'm just going to throw it at you. How does it work in terms of bringing a book out into the world of great, personal import. I mean, you worked on it for years and years, and it's of professional import. How does one do that in such a way from sort of a, a mindful perspective that it's not all about ego? I mean, how does one sort of balance this uh, this desire for it to do well without it becoming an egoic proposition?
0: It's such a great question, and it's such a such a humbling question. It reminds me of the like first or second talk I ever gave that was kind of a big talk, it was with Jack Cornfield, and there was a thousand people in the audience and I'd never spoken to that big um, an audience and I was about 28, I believe 27 or 28 and I remember we were backstage and I was shaking. I mean, I was <laughs> so nervous and Jack looked at me and kindly, but but firmly he said, this isn't about you, you know, you're, these, this is about offering these teachings um, into this world. And it was like this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. These teachings saved my life. They changed my life. And I have the privilege of just sharing them. It's, they're not my teachings. And I feel the same way with this book is that these teachings have literally been a part of my life for 25 years in the most beautiful way. I I feel just this incredible sense of gratitude and reverence for them and a deep clarity that they're not mine. And all I've done is taken from the extraordinary teachers that I've had and tried to take the very best of what I've learned in 25 years as a scientist and a practitioner, and then just offer it back out. And it's been really interesting because it's felt so pure. In fact, even when I signed the book deal, I remember speaking to my mother and I said, you know, it's a big book deal and it's a lot of pressure. And I am not going to write a single word unless it's out of gratitude and and this dedication. And so for the first three months, I didn't write anything. <laughs> and everyone kept saying, oh my God, why haven't we started? And <laughs> this is a problem. And I said, I just... It's not authentic right now. Um, and trust me, in my past, I have pushed through that and just written and done work. This, But this felt really, it was an incredibly beautiful project for me from the beginning to the end. And when I started writing, I just wrote. And in fact, Esalen was so generous and gave me a place to stay for a week. And so I wrote a lot of the book just in this one week, just literally waking up, meditating, writing, getting a massage, writing, going for a hike. And and it came out of this incredible joy. I was kind of sad when it, when it ended, truthfully.
1: <laughs> that's great, that's great. Thank you so much for, um, for speaking to that. Is there anything else that, that you would like to, to speak to, Shauna, be- before we hop off? I
0: think one of the most important things that I want people to take with them, and it was really one of my goals of the book, is that it's never too late to change. That no matter what has happened to you, no matter what your current circumstances, it's never too late to re-architect the very fabric of your consciousness. And these practices, they are simple and they are available in any moment. And so I think that for me is really the take home and gives me so much hope is that it's never too late. We're never stuck that there's always this possibility and it's in every single moment. We can begin right here and right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Shauna Shapiro, thank you so much for speaking to us remotely from Texas. The name of the book is Good Morning, I Love You. (laughs) Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy.
0: Thank you, Sam.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Laurie Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Greg Archer. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman, and our interstitial music is by Dawn Chorus. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org, where you'll also find many other offerings to get you through this unprecedented time.